You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, Judges chapter 9. Uh, is where we're going to be today. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that John just mentioned a second ago, page 208, uh, and then quickly into 209 is where today's text will be. Uh, in Judges chapter 9, the unraveling of, of everything, really, through Gideon's family continues. And as you're going to hear in just a moment, it's a hard passage. It's a hard word in this passage. But for the original hearers and for us today, It's a needed word, Uh, one that is meant to wake us up, one that is meant to resensitize us to the curse of sin and to its effects. So we're going to get right into it this morning. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Judges chapter 9. I'll read some selections from it so you can follow along on the screen or just listen for uh, when I call out some some verses. So chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bereith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the, all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And he goes on to tell a fable there involving trees, but then he explains that fable down in verse 16. So in verse 16, then we pick it up. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to them as his deeds deserved, For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbaal might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. 
And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, Ebed said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Skip down to verse 39. And Gael went out at the head, at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebel drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of el -Berif. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle, and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, in all of our lives and in all of scripture, but especially in this moment and in this passage, we wish and we need to see Jesus. So we ask that by your Holy Spirit's power, he would now give us eyes to see his glory. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Amen. In the book of Judges, if you've been with us in this series, we've seen this downwardly spiraling cycle. Rebellion, retribution, and then repentance and rescue. But Judges chapter 9 is all retribution. Did you hear that? It's like, it's like a bad radio station. All retribution all the time. It's all there is in Judges 9. It's a vivid picture of the curse of sin and what it looks like when God doesn't intervene with his mercy and grace. 
So with the rest of our time, let's consider this text in, in three parts. A curse anticipated, a curse realized, and then a curse absorbed. So first, a, a curse anticipated. The leaders in the book of Judges, whether they be actual judges, or whether they be military leaders or deliverers, uh, they are men and women who are called by God into that role. But not Abimelech. Uh, he is the only self-appointed, quote-unquote, judge in this book. And he's not leading Israel against an external enemy. Here the enemy is, is internal. He himself, actually, along with the people of Shechem, become the threat. They become the enemy. But actually, their rebellion began long before that moment. It began when Israel asked Abimelech's father, Gideon, to be the king over them. We saw last week, when Gideon was asked to be the king over the people, he, he said the right thing. He responded with faithful words. He said, I will not be your king. The Lord will be your king. But then he immediately went on to live like a king anyway. He had 70 sons from multiple wives. He had at least one concubine. And Gideon named the son from his concubine Abimelech, which in Hebrew means, my father is king. And so it really should be of no surprise at all to us that when Gideon eventually dies, there's going to be a war for succession. He lived like a king. He acted like a king. Some of his sons are going to want power like a king, the way he had it. So Abimelech conspires with the leaders of Shechem to murder the rest of Gideon's sons. And any doubt that Shechem was involved here is erased when they give 70 pieces of silver as blood money. 70 pieces for 70 sons. And where does that money come from? It comes from the treasury of the house of Baal Bereth, this false god, this idol that the people are worshiping. So at this point, Israel has declared themselves, as one scholar termed it, spiritual Canaanites. They've rejected their own heritage, their own identity. They've become spiritual Canaanites. They've adopted the idols of Canaan. They've adopted their practices. They've adopted their approach to and their dependence upon military might and political power. And the horror of this, even if this is the first time you've ever read Judges 9, the horror of it is obvious. It's very evident in the passage itself. It's even more appalling when we step back and remember where all of this takes place. Shechem is a place with incredible significance in Israel's history. In Genesis chapter 12, Shechem was the first place that Abraham camped in the promised land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham there at the oak that was in Shechem, and he promised him that he would give his descendants, his family, all of that land. And Abraham, in response, then built an altar to God in that place. Fast forward a couple generations, Shechem is also where Jacob, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, where Jacob put away the, the idols that his, the people in his household had begun to worship, and he renewed his dedication to the Lord. Fast forward a couple more generations to Joshua chapter 8, uh, as Joshua and the Israelites are entering the promised land, they renew their covenant with God, where? At Shechem. So this place, in other words, testifies to the covenant between God and his people. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit or berith. But as we see there in verse 4, they've forsaken their berith with God, and the altar to God that was in Shechem has become the house of Baal berith. The oak where God came and spoke to Abraham becomes the coronation site for an incredibly wicked and corrupt king. 
So Tim Keller, in his commentary on Judges, puts it this way. He says, What happens in Shechem in Judges chapter 9 would be similar to Americans deciding to reinstitute slavery at a meeting in Gettysburg or racial segregation at Montgomery. So the exact opposite of what those places stand for in our minds, that's what's happening at Shechem. It's a place that stands for the covenant between God and his people, and they've rejected that covenant. Shechem also sits at the bottom of two mountains, uh, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which are also places of of immense significance. In, In the book of Deuteronomy, God says through Moses that when the people reach the promised land, the Levites are to stand on those mountains and to proclaim covenant blessings from Mount Gerizim and covenant curses from Mount Ebal. So from Mount Gerizim, blessings. Keep your covenant, and here's all the blessings that will come to you as you keep your covenant and are faithful to it with God. But Mount, uh, that's Mount Gerizim. Mount Ebal, if you reject that covenant, you will experience the curse of sin. You will experience God's judgment against sin. See, long before we reach the book of Judges, a curse is anticipated. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 says this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and all his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. God knows what is in the heart of humanity. He knows what what you and I are capable of when left to ourselves. And so though he promises to be our God, though he will remain faithful to his covenant regardless of how we respond to it, he also promises that there is a curse for rejecting him, for disobeying him. And we could maybe say it this way, God never baits and switches people. He anticipates that people are going to turn away from him and he's revealed in advance that that's going to be catastrophic for their own lives and for for the lives of others. And all of this backdrop adds a lot of meaning to what happens next in Judges 9. Because in Judges 9, it's not just anticipating a curse in general, it anticipates a specific curse. Jotham is the only one of Gideon's sons to escape the slaughter. And he prophesies a curse on both Abimelech and the people of Shechem, first in a fable about trees, which we didn't get to read today, but I'd encourage you to go back when you have a chance. And then in its explanation, he essentially says, because you've been treacherous to Gideon's family, because you've been so foolish in your selection of a king, this is going to go badly. This is going to go badly. Because you have conspired together in an unholy alliance with each other, you will now destroy each other. Where is Jotham, though, when he anticipates and prophesies this curse? He's not on Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses. That that would actually make more sense if he climbed Mount Ebal and proclaimed that there. Jotham prophesies this curse from Mount Gerizim. So here's the idea. When curses come from the Mount of Blessing, how hopeless are we? How hopeless are we? How precarious a position when there's no room left for blessing, but even from the Mount of Blessing, only curses come. It would be like at the end of one of our worship services. The benediction when I or someone else stands up here at the front and, tries and says a word of blessing over you. How hopeless would you be if instead of me saying, now go in peace to serve and love the Lord, I said something like, now go in despair and confidence of your mutually assured destruction. 
Like, what if that was the best thing I could say to you as we left our worship service and went back out into the world? It'd be horrible, would it not? It'd be hopeless. Judges 9 is a picture of the curse of sin. Rejection of God. When we declare ourselves God, when we declare ourselves kings and we go our own way, it brings that curse of sin upon us. And this is not some kind of God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament kind of thing. Consider what Jesus himself goes on to say in Matthew 25. Then God, the Father, will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Jesus goes on to say then, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Sin brings a curse upon us and the consequence of rebelling against God is, as Jesus puts it here, eternal punishment. Eternal punishment. Now, many of us know that or have heard that perhaps before, but like the Israelites, we're prone to minimize it, kind of sweep it under the rug or pretend it's not, it's not really there. We're prone to treat sin really lightly and perhaps pay some kind of lip service to God, but really devote ourselves to idols, whatever they be. We are, like the Israelites, just as capable of turning what was once the altar of God into the house of Baal. And so as strange as it might sound, what, what should we do with, Genesis, with Judges chapter 9? As strange as it might sound, the first thing we need to do is actually see and remember that there is a curse against sin. See and remember the curse. D- don't forget that a curse is anticipated and proclaimed not only by God over Israel, but by Jesus himself. And hell, eternal punishment, is the full experience, it's the full realization of the curse of sin. Think about Judges 9 this way then, if that's helpful. In many ways, Judges 9 is a portrait of hell. It's a foretaste of hell, which becomes even more evident as Jotham's curse goes from anticipation to realization. And so second, let's talk not only about a curse being anticipated, but a curse realized. Uh, apparently, this arrangement from Ambe- with Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem goes okay, uh, at least for a little while. Abimelech rules, it says, for three years. We can imagine perhaps even that he and the leaders of Shechem sometimes are joking about, remember that crazy guy that stood on the mountain and said, this was going to go badly? We're doing fine. Whatever happened to that guy? But then it goes really badly. Uh, first, in a relatively small way, Bands of armed men are attacking and robbing people on the road in and out of Shechem. Uh, Perhaps, scholars think, cutting off a substantial source of funding for Abimelech's government. But it escalates really quickly. It starts there, it escalates really quickly. This man named Gaal moves into Shechem and convinces them to follow him instead of Abimelech. And if we know nothing else about the leaders of Shechem, it's that they love a good conspiracy. Loyalty... Not so much, but if there's a chance to conspire with someone and overthrow someone else, they're in. They're going to go for it. So they conspire with Gaal. One ruler of the city, this man named Zebul, tips off Abimelech, gives him a heads up that that's happening. There's an ambush set, and when the forces collide, Abimelech wins, and Gaal and his relatives are driven out. 
but you perhaps noticed this as we read it, this activates Abimelech's paranoia and a craving for vengeance. Uh, remember, if you were with us the last couple weeks, remember how Gideon turned valor into vengeance? He began as an instrument of the judgment of God against an enemy nation, but then he turned it into a personal vendetta against the kings of Midian? Well, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree in Abimelech. After this conspiracy, Abimelech's rage and his thirst for vengeance become unquenchable and become his downfall. So the next day, he basically repeats the same attack, except this time, instead of fighting a rival and a rival army, he just attacks the unarmed civilians of Shechem. It's not a battle, it's a massacre. It's a massacre. And as we read, Abimelech is only content with complete annihilation. He kills the people, he raises the entire city, and then he sows the ground with salt so that nothing else will ever grow there again. It's an undoing, it's an unraveling of creation. And so this place where God met with Abraham, the first place that he met with Abraham in the promised land, now becomes an uninhabitable wasteland. Only a thousand of the leaders and people of Shechem remain. They flee to the tower of Shechem, which is some kind of fortified structure that would serve as the last line of defense, the final place of refuge when the city fell. And then, with incredible consistency, the curse of Jotham is realized. Fire from the bramble, fire from Abimelech, devours those leaders of Shechem. And yet, Abimelech's fury does not subside. Uh, most likely due to paranoia that the city of Thebes and its people were also part of the conspiracy against him, uh, Abimelech treks a few miles northeast to Thebes and captures that city. Uh, there's another tower there, we read. And again, the remaining people and the leaders of that place flee to the tower. Confident, cocky even, that Abimelech is now going to deal out the same vengeance he's just dealt to Shechem, he gets really close to the door of the tower, really close to the tower to start another fire. But this time it goes a lot differently. An, an otherwise unknown woman from Thebes has an upper millstone with her. Now this would be the top stone of a hand-operated grinder, a grinder for, for grain. Uh, so not the massive millstones that would have been operated by draft animals. Uh, we see those referred to in other parts of Scripture, but this would have been a much smaller hand-operated version of that. Even though it's smaller, though, it's still heavy enough to hurt a lot if it's dropped on someone, especially if it's dropped from a height of, the height of a tower and if it's, as verse 53 puts it, thrown down from the height of a tower. And so this woman throws down this upper millstone and it crushes Abimelech's skull. He's about to die. But rather than suffer the humiliation of being killed by a civilian woman, he has his armor bearer run him through with a sword. Now here's the humorous part. We remember exactly what he never wanted us to remember. He told the, the armor bearer to run him through because he didn't want people to remember that he was killed by a woman. For 3,000 years now, it's been written down, recorded, and passed along. He was killed by a woman. He was killed by a woman. And if we were writing like a, like a 2020 translation with our vernacular of this passage, we would at least have to call the stone crushing his skull a significant comorbidity. <laughs> Judges is a disturbing book, is it not? It's a disturbing book. And if you're brand new to Christianity, I don't know what impressions you have of the Bible. If you've been around the church a long time, but you've only ever handled the Bible with kid gloves, 
with euphemisms, with cliches. Let Judges, and Judges 9 in particular, shake you up to what's really written down here, to the horror that's there. This is a picture of what sin is and what sin does. And scenes like this one in Judges 9, but really in all of Scripture that are like this, they take what it can be so often theoretical, so often overly spiritualized, and they make them concrete. What does the curse of sin look like? It looks like betrayal and slaughter and fire and crushed skulls. The one stone on which Abimelech murders Gideon's other son leads to another one stone which crushes his skull. The curse of sin is that the conspiracy is going to be met with another conspiracy, that an ambush is going to be met with another ambush, that a stone is going to be met with another stone. Now, where has God been in all of this? Where is God in Judges chapter 9? He is both silent and active. So he's silent between actually Judges chapter 8 verse 34 and Judges chapter 10 verse 6. God is not mentioned by his covenant name, Yahweh, not mentioned by his name, Yahweh, one time. Why not? Because Israel's broken their covenant. They've cut themselves off from communion, from their relationship with him. They don't seek him. They don't walk in his ways. And so God, at least by his covenant name, is silent. But he remains active. He remains active, working behind the scenes. Look again there at verse 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. This is one of the deeply mysterious aspects of our faith. God cannot do evil. God does not cause people to commit evil, but he, he does use evil and he can use evil, even sending evil spirits like he does here to accomplish his good purposes. And then down in verses 56 and 57, we read the only other mention of God in this text. It says this, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So there's a couple things playing out simultaneously here in this text. In what sometimes is referred to as the passive wrath of God. God simply takes his hands off and he lets the consequences of the curse of sin run their course. So when wicked people appoint a wicked man to be their leader, it leads to their mutual destruction. As it's been pointed out by many people smarter than myself, people tend to get the leaders they deserve. People tend to get the leaders they deserve. That's exactly what plays out in Judges chapter 9. And perhaps apt words for our political moment that we are in right now, too. Scholar named Michael Wilcock goes on to say this. He says, God's almighty power is seen most chiefly in showing mercy and pity. God has little need to use his power in judgment. He has but to take his restraining hand off the brake and wicked men will run to their own destruction. At the same time, though, God doesn't just take his hand off the brake in Judges 9. He sends actively an evil spirit. He stirs up the dissension and the strife between Abimelech and the people of Shechem, so that their evil will eventually return on their own heads, so that this curse will not just be anticipated, but realized. As we've said, Judges chapter 9 is retribution without 
repentance and without rescue. As Barry Webb puts it, this text is not about showing grace to the undeserving, but about God giving them exactly what they deserve. He goes on to say, God is not obligated to show grace to sinners. He is perfectly within his rights to punish them exactly as they deserve. Judges 9 is God's divine judgment without the intervention or the restraint of his mercy and grace. It is a foretaste of hell, which is what, at the end of the day, every single one of us deserve. Hell is the the ultimate consequence of our rebellion against God and our rejection of God. It's where the curse of sin ultimately leads. Let the violent and the vivid pictures of the book of Judges resensitize you then to the horror of sin. The whole account of Abimelech is a warning to the people of God about how dangerous evil and wickedness really are. God is under no obligation to rescue. And think about this. He was under no obligation to raise up in this book earlier, Othniel or Ehud or Shamgar or Deborah or Barak or Jael or Gideon. All of those accounts, all of those stories could have gone this way too. He's under no obligation to intervene and deliver. But intervene, he does. He does. And so third, let's talk about a curse absorbed. Even here, as catastrophic as this text is, we still glimpse something of the mercy of God. It's what we might call a limiting or a restraining mercy. God limits, as terrible as all this is, God limits the effects of it. It's limited in time. It only lasts three years, as opposed to some of the decades-long iterations that play out often in the book of Judges. It's limited in scope, It's largely relegated to a small portion of the land. And as we read, after this is over, the people of Israel return to their homes and the rest of the land and the rest of the people seem to be largely unaffected by what's played out in and around Shechem. But simply restraining or limiting the curse of sin will never be enough. Never be enough. Imagine living your whole life waiting for the other shoe to drop not knowing if God's retribution and judgment is lurking for you just over the next hill or just around the next bend. Always wondering if today, if this moment is one when God is going to restrain his judgment or one where he's just going to turn it loose and let it take its full course. For some of you, that might describe your reality right now. That constant fear of waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for judgment. You have a nagging sense maybe that something is deeply wrong. And this never-ending cycle of living for yourself or devoting yourself to things that cannot satisfy you, money, power, sex, control, comfort, whatever those things might be, you're realizing that not only is that empty and unfulfilling, but actually it's beginning to devour you like the fire devours Abimelech and the people of Shechem. The heart of God, if that's you, the heart of God is to rescue you from that. To rescue you and redeem you from the curse of sin. Make no mistake about it, God will punish and judge sin, but his heart, his desire is to rescue us from it. The scriptures teach us that God is both 
merciful and just. That he is the God both of love and of judgment. But centuries later, the Apostle John goes on to write, God is love. We can't say the same thing about judgment. Scripture never says that God is judgment in the way that Scripture says God is love. And we see in Scripture that God exalts himself over and over again to show mercy to otherwise undeserving people. Just as the curse of sin was anticipated and then realized, so was its cure. In Genesis chapter 3, actually in the same moment that God pronounces the curse against sin, he promises rescue from it. And you want to read a passage about a skull getting crushed? Genesis chapter 3, God says, The offspring of the woman, there will come a day when he will crush the head of the serpent. How? By taking the curse upon himself. By taking the full weight, his unrestrained judgment and wrath against sin upon himself. And so centuries later, quoting actually the curses from Mount Ebal, In Deuteronomy chapter 27, the apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, as it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But then Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ God the Son, God in the flesh, redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And on the cross, the curse falls upon him so that, as Paul goes on to conclude that passage, the blessing, instead of the curse, the blessing of Abraham might come, that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. As we've seen in Judges chapter 9, how hopeless and how lost are we when both mountains become mountains of curses, when there is no room left for blessing. But thanks be to God, there's another mountain. And the cross on Mount Calvary declares over you and me that there will never be a day when all we have left is a curse. Jesus has absorbed the curse. Christ redeems us from the curse. And so two final things to say in conclusion to this text and two things to take from this and to apply to our own lives. First, be resensitized to the horror of your sin and repent of it. Jesus' salvation absorbs the curse for those of us who repent of our sin and turn to him. But it simultaneously puts the world on notice Puts the world on notice. Paul, again, in the book of Acts, chapter 17, says this in Athens, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus' death and resurrection, his salvation not only absorbs the curse of sin, but it also puts the world on notice. It assures us that a day is coming that God really will judge the world in righteousness. So don't treat sin lightly. Don't accommodate it. Don't presume upon the grace and mercy of God. God is under no obligation to bless covenant breakers like you and like me. 
through this foretaste of hell that is Judges chapter 9, become all the more amazed, become all the more grateful that Jesus took that punishment for us, that he became that curse for us. May the kindness of God truly lead us to repentance. And then lastly, may you never take a benediction for granted again. May you never take a benediction for granted again. In our culture, it's very common for people to say nice things to send good thoughts, good vibes, whatever language people might use, so much of which, at the end of the day, is empty and meaningless. Nice in sentiment, devoid of any truth, devoid of power. Because Jesus redeems us from the curse of sin, whether it's me or someone else who stands up here and proclaims a benediction, a word of blessing over you. Receive it with all of the truth and all of the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we say each week, truly lift your heads, lift your eyes, because in Christ, for you, for you, there no longer remains a word of curse, but a word of blessing. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, hearing a text like this and being confronted with our own sin ruins us. We are like Isaiah who stands before the glory of God and recognizes how far short we fall and says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among an unclean people. My eyes have seen the king. Our eyes have seen you in your word this morning, Father. And we are utterly ruined by that. I pray as we feel the despair of that, as we are inclined to be crushed under the weight of sin and the curse of sin, that you would turn our eyes to Jesus, that you would fix our eyes on the mount of crucifixion where Jesus became a curse for us, where he hung on that tree and was cursed in our place so that your favor, your blessing might truly rest upon us. As we come to this table, which shows us the cost, you absorbing the curse for us. I pray that we would come recognizing our sin, resensitized to the horror of it, that we would even in these moments leading up to this table repent of our sin. But I pray also that we would come confident of the blessing that is ours by grace through the finished work of Christ, that we would come knowing that it's by your wounds we've been healed. You have come into the world and offered up yourself, absorbed the curse for us so that your blessing might rest upon us. We're grateful to you, Jesus. We have no hope in this world but you. Let me pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.